This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. So I wanted to start by saying that you know, we find ourselves in a really odd moment. Right? We find ourselves in a really demoralizing moment. So much has changed even just over the last two years. And I am really grateful to be here. Um, I'm grateful for all of the brilliant presenters that we heard from this weekend. And mostly I'm grateful to just hold space with you um, to be with other people who are trying to make sense of this political moment. So with that said, um, I'll get into it. So thinking back, we know that the year of 2020 really marked an enormous shift for the politics of the transliteration movement, right? The emergence of the chant, Black Trans Lives Matter, amid the multiracial, multigendered movements that swept the United States that summer, really signaled the emergence of a transliteration politics, both within the broader left and within liberal spaces as well. However, much like the politics of Black liberation or the Black Lives Matter movement, the politics of trans liberation has also experienced a backlash, a reactionary backlash. And so um, what I hope to do in this talk is a couple things. I want to begin by first providing a brief survey of what that political reaction has looked like, both legislatively, but also what some people might describe as a cult on the cultural field. Um, I then want to move into making an argument for what is animating or what is motivating that political reaction. Like, why now? We seem like right, we made our way to the quote-unquote transgender tipping point. Why are we sliding backwards at this moment? And then finally, I'm going to wrap up by just briefly making some suggestions about the ways in which the left must, absolutely must, seriously engage with the politics of trans liberation. So with that. We all know that 2022 has been a landmark year for reactionary legislation. There have been 238 bills introduced across the United States to target LGBTQ people. About half of those specifically target transgender or gender nonconforming people. To put that into perspective, turn the clock back to 2017, and we saw the introduction of 41 anti-LGBTQ bills. And I think that the reactionary trend becomes clear. Now, the 2022 wave um, really focuses on trans youth, but as advocates have warned, this is really just the beginning. And what I'd like to do is to provide just a brief sampling of this legislation, not that we're not aware of it, but I think that it's important to situate ourselves in the political moment, right? So I'm going to ask for a little bit of a call and response here. I want some booze, right, where they're appropriate, right? So I think y'all can follow along and figure out where they belong. So in February, Texas Governor Greg Abbott <laughs> issues an executive order, right, that designates gender-affirming care as child abuse. And he does so by reinterpreting this existing state statute um, and then directs the Texas Department of 
um, child welfare to be investigated in the families of transgender youth. Right? The same year, Texas also passes a ban that restricts transgender athletes' access to scholastic sports. Then, in March, with much fanfare, get ready again, Florida governor and 2024 presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis <laughs> signed what has become known as the Don't Say Gay Bill into law. And of course, we know that this is a law that makes it a crime to even talk about non-cisgender identities or non-heterosexual relations or families inside public schools. So it's a law that effectively forces transgender or queer youth back into the closet, as well as educators back into the closet as well. I mentioned that like this is just really just the beginning, right? And just a few weeks ago, in August, if, you, if you're not aware, uh, Florida passed sort of reverse course and passed a ruling that um, put a ban on Medicare coverage for gender-affirming surgeries for both youth and adults. So if you are not familiar, transgender gender-affirming procedures cost tens of thousands of dollars. In fact, 16 years ago, before insurance covered any of these things, my own gender-affirming procedures I used student loan to cover, right? And uh, those were just paid back last year through 15 years, and only thanks to public service student loan agreements. So Florida is now joining, uh, there's 10 other states that have similar bans on Medicare coverage. Um, and some of these are in the process of being challenged in court. But nonetheless, I think it's important for us to understand that the Florida really, really targets poor trans people um, who already struggle to find access to adequate medical care. In fact, there are 9,000 transgender Floridians who are currently on Medicare, and so we have 9,000 people who are effectively being forced to detransition. To round out the legislation sampling, um, in July, South Carolina joined Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, Ohio, and yes, Illinois, in passing uh, a new law that would now allow medical providers to refuse to provide care when that care would violate religious beliefs. And of course, we understand that to be a thinly veiled move that is only going to shield medical discrimination for queer, gender nonconforming people, transgender people, and of course, cisgender women who are trying to access reproductive care. Uh, but the anti-transpolitical backlash has also entered what we might describe as a cultural field. I, we might debate that it's an exclusively cultural field, but GOP legislators um, supported by right-wing think tanks have turned to banning books. And of course, these books focus on queer um, LGBTQ folks as well as issues of race and diversity. In its annual report, the American Library Association found that there were 729 discrete attempts to remove not just K-12, right? I think this is important, not just K-12, but also university level and library materials um, and uh, which resulted in 1,597 book challenges and removals. And that was in the year of 2021. So I can't imagine what's going on now. Mm -hmm. Not to be outshone, Texas State Representative Matt Krauss sent a list of over 850 titles to the State Department of Education uh, for removal. And a study showed that over 60% of those titles dealt with either LGBTQ characters or issues um, addressing LGBTQ people. The banning of books is also spilled outside of public school walls. Uh, the, the GOP, their political talking heads, and their alt-right audience have set their sights on LGBTQ family events and what we know as drag queen story hours. In June, a group of five Proud Boys members interrupted a drag queen story. Yeah, we can boo there too. A group of five Proud Boys members. <laughs> wake ourselves up a little bit, right? Um, 
they disrupted a drag queen story hour event in San Lorenzo, um, California, um, where they shouted homophobic slurs and just generally intimidated patrons. And if you've seen their video of this stuff, it's pretty violent, pretty like heroin nasty stuff. So I think that you know there are countless other examples that we can point to that illustrate the heroin moment that we find ourselves in, but I think that this will suffice to paint the picture. So as the description of the talk says, without a doubt, the attacks on transgender people and gender non-conforming people are a calculated political play that are aimed at motivating conservative voters ahead of the midterm. Um, however, there's more at work here than simple political cunning, and I think the purpose of this talk is that I want to underscore that unpacking what is animating or motivating this reactionary backlash will better position us to be able to address it and ultimately defeat it. So I have a couple of books here, a little show and tell. Um, there's a book called The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump. And in it, the author, um, Corey Robin, he makes an argument that conservative thought historically has been concerned with this idea of fixed hierarchies and perceived loss. So Robbins writes that conservatism is a meditation on and a theoretical rendition of the felt experience of having power, seeing it threatened, and then trying to win it back, right? whether it was actually threatened or not, right? the perception of, of threatened power. Emerging in a period of extreme political polarization, what we might describe as multiple and intersecting crises, right? we have a climate crisis, we're experiencing an economic crisis, there's a crisis in the legitimacy of policing still, a crisis in the legitimacy of imperialism. The present moment of political reaction represents just that. It's a movement that is born out of a rejection both to what we might describe as neoliberal multiculturalism, or what we commonly think of as liberalism, um, and a reaction to neoliberal conservatism. And it's in response to the relative social and political advances that have been made by women, LGBTQ people, and folks of color over the last several decades. Now, seemingly in contradiction to all of this, there was a recent study by Data for Progress, and it shows that a slight, slight majority of voters actually believe in protections for transgender folks, right? believe that we should have federal protections for transgender folks. And recently, a Pew Research study has shown that LGBTQ and transgender issues are not even top concerns for voters ahead of the midterms. So if this is the case, right, we have to ask ourselves, what then is motivating the legislative attack? So I want to make the argument that the alt-right maintains an outsized influence over American politics, and that that influence um, is reflected in popular and political discourse, in the wave of reactionary legislation, and then finally, in street violence. Um, the alt-right is a formation that is profoundly animated by what we might call anti-feminism, and a perverse adherence to biological essentialism, and the anti-trans politics of the alt-right serve as a window into a broader political worldview in which reactionary attitudes towards race and gender are evidence of socioeconomic anxieties in connection with the perceived loss that Robbins talks about. So who is the alt-right? Um, there's a book called Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate by Alexandra Minister. You can get it in the Haymarket book. I highly recommend this book. It's really clear in thinking about, uses the Proud Boys as a case study, but uses that to think about who the alt-right is broadly. Um, but in it, Alexandra Minister describes the alt-right as an array of political actors, right? And she concludes that this includes disaffected libertarians, paleoconservatives, racialists of varying stripes, you have your white supremacists, your white separatists, your nationalists, your ethno-nationalists, as well as men's rights activists, uh, misogynists, neo-reactionaries, anti-Semites, 
and finally, xenophobes with conspicuous animus against Latinos and Muslims. So I think it's important to note that the anti-trans reaction is present throughout the, right, the alt-right constellation, but it is perhaps most clearly and most profoundly expressed by the Proud Boys. Um, so I want to do a little bit of a deep dive into who they are and what they're, what they're thinking of. So the Proud Boys were founded in 2016, and oftentimes they're described as the alt-right gateway to the alt-right. They describe themselves as, quote, a male fraternity of Western chauvinists. Uh, what distinguishes the uh, Proud Boys from other formations in the alt-right constellation is that they have this outward rejection of race-based essentialism. Outward, right? It's obviously not true, but it's uh, an outward rejection. Um, however, like they, they collaborate openly with white nationalists and their internal communications really expose a culture that is uh, rife with racism and racial hostility. So um, when Gavin McGinnis, the former leader of the Proud Boys, first announced the name of the group, he did so on a 2016 episode of his podcast. And he did so at the same time that he said, quote, the Proud Boys are over race that we're kind of like the alt-right, but without racism. Now, completely disingenuous statement, right? Thank you. Completely disingenuous statement, but what does it do? It clears the way for a different foundational perspective. It's one that centers men's anxieties about the threats of feminism um, and about their social standing in the world, right? this perceived white man loss. Um, in the same podcast, McGinnis goes on to proclaim that the Proud Boys are, quote, pro-dude, and that the organization believes that, quote, most women would be happy at home. Elsewhere, Proud Boys members have expressed concern over women taking over men's roles, earning more university degrees, and have stated that men, especially white Christian men, are becoming marginalized. In an interview with NPR producer Zoe Chase, one Proud Boys member insisted that we, men and women, are a biological binary, we are biologically different. So these anxieties that are directed at the gender-based binary are commonly expressed within the organization, and this adherence to gender-based biological essentialism reveals a core tenet of the group's animating beliefs. To members of the Proud Boys is the erosion of gender roles that is the primary cause for the degeneration of Western society, or as Alexander Minister describes it, the all solution to gender disorder is to put women back in their quote, natural place to reestablish the biological binary through the formation of hyper-masculinized tribes, patriarchal control of hypergamous women, pronatalist incentives, as well as, get this, dating apps for white women to mate and propagate the race. Undergirding the alt-right's anti-feminism is this preoccupation with transgender politics and the preoccupation evinces a reactionary logic, a like really violent reactionary logic, right? The past trans people as degenerate threats to a natural world order. And I want to share two examples or two what we might call cultural, cultural artifacts to underscore this point. And um, I want to kind of take a step back here and say, I think it's important to take a look at the words and the rhetoric that the alt-right uses because what I'm trying to show here is the way in which there is a fluid migration between alt-right sort of news sites, forums, and blogs and into the political mainstream, right? And so that underscores the point that the alt-right maintains this outside influence on American politics. So I want to begin by talking about, there was this 2014 blog post called Transphobia is Perfectly Natural. 
And in it, Proud Boys leader Gavin McGinnis again describes trans people as mentally ill people, um, excuse me, uh, defines them as mentally ill and describes the process of transition as one of self mutilation. Of course, I'll get to this later, but we hear that from Tucker Carlson almost every night now. The post was originally published on Thought Catalog. It's since been removed, but if you have the stomach for it, it is archived on the internet. And I think that it's important because it's an artifact that represents and expresses this unmistakable distress about transgender people, their very existence, right? Um, so McGinnis's insistence on this violent imagery to describe the act of transition betrays considerable anxiety about what is ultimately um, an intimate and private medical decision. So I'm gonna give a warning here. Um, I am gonna quote from the blog post. And um, I want to warn you that the content is violent and the content is profane. And so if you want to step out and rejoin us in a few minutes, that would be a perfectly respectable um, response. So this 2014 blog post begins with the language that says, the only thing more normal than castrating yourself and taking a bunch of hormones to grow tits is chopping them off. Right? And I want to get to this emphasis in a minute because it says something about trying to protect the boundaries of cisgender maleness. He goes on to say that transmasculine individuals who transition are having their C words turned inside out to be replaced with, quote, a weird cheese blinks looking thing. I want to quote this language because it has a profound attentiveness to the body. And this profound attentiveness shows us that trans people are being characterized not only as grotesque and disfigured, but also as this threat to biological harmony and common sense. So I think it's notable that trans masculine individuals who are oftentimes more likely to be absent from popular representations of trans identity are uniquely targeted in the document. In fact, some of the most grotesque language is reserved for what McGinnis casts as vaginal mutilation. And this is notable because it expresses the very core of alt-right anti-feminism, right? When in particular, McGinnis's rendering of transmasculine um, transition echoes the same anxieties that arose in the Zoe Chase interviews. That is, what is most alarming to the alt-right is that women are trying to become men, and that men, especially white Christian men, are becoming marginalized. The blog post exemplifies the common alt-right urgency to protect the supremacy and the boundaries of cisgender norms. McGinnis suggests that women have, quote, a primal, I can't even, like, believe this stuff. I, I went back and forth as to whether or not I was going to even share this in the room, just how bizarre and, and nasty it is. But he goes on to suggest that, quote, women have a primal urge to experience vaginal sex, and that this inescapable, biologically determined truth renders any attempt at male, uh, excuse me, female-to-male transition is illegitimate. You are not a man, McGinnis makes clear. But in so doing, he also asserts the superiority of maleness. He says men are awesome, they invent things, they know how practical things work. So to begin, I know it's, it's bizarre, it makes sense, like it, it's just nonsensical, but like, so what is the logic underneath this? Like to begin, it's what he's saying is that maleness correlates with like an intelligence and an expertise and how dare women, right, try to access or replicate that. At the same time, I want to emphasize this equally, right, that the alt-right is also incredibly trans, uh, trans, trans misogyny, right? Um, so this reaction to trans feminine identities takes on a little bit of a different form. It takes on oftentimes the form of in-group gender policing. Members of the alt-right that are primarily cis male formation demonstrate an intense preoccupation with defining individual masculinity 
in opposition to family markers. And so I want to move on and talk about a different cultural artifact. Um, if folks are familiar with the uh, uh, anarchist investigative journalist outlet, Unicorn Riot. Okay, cool. So they do really fantastic work. Um, following the 2017 Unite the Right rally, they got their hands on this um, cache of Discord <coughs> chats that were from among various alt-right, far-right, excuse me, alt-right, far-right formations. So the internal communications that were going on in the lead up to this event. And so you can you can search these. The, 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 it's been turned into sort of a, uh, a database. Yeah, that's how it's called. It's like a database. It's on their website. You can search and you can actually read what these folks have been saying. But you can also, also search keywords. So um, a query of the database will return 10,000 posts that contain the word trend. Another 10,000 posts contain the word gender ideology. Still another 7,224 contain the word transgender. And these discussion threads, they reveal a significant apprehension about feminine sex characteristics in men. And equally interesting, confessions of body dysphoria in cisgendered men, right? Like just not, like I'm not feeling manly enough kind of thing. Um, in one thread, participants express alarm over the term soy boys, which apparently is a term that is supposed to <laughs> represent a feminine men. Um, and then go on to express concerns over uh, estrogen, linked to, estrogen right, uh, increases that are linked to the consumption of um, sort of products and female secondary sex characteristics that might uh, be activated as a result. So similarly, the centrality of male hierarchy is also evidenced in these discord leaks. The terms incel, beta, alpha, chad, and cuck make repeated appearances among the threads, and what this does is it exposes, if you're unfamiliar with that, there are like, terms that are part of the men's rights movement that suggest a hierarchy of um, alpha maleness. Uh, but what this does is it exposes a culture that is eminently concerned with masculine rank and pedigree. Uh, the attention to male hierarchy and the in-group policing of gender are paralleled by these fanatical levels of misogyny, transphobia, and transmisogyny. So I share all that um, not because I'm a creep or think that you know I'm, I'm just a masochist and want to read nasty things, but because, again, I want to demonstrate that there's a fluid migration of ideological production that begins in these far-right forums and blogs and makes their way into the political mainstream, and that what this does is it's evidence of um, the alt-movement's considerable influence. So I want to take us back to 2021. You guys all remember the We Spot incident? Some of us? Okay. If you're unfamiliar, in 2021, there's this tweet that goes viral. It's a completely unsubstantiated tweet, and the tweet claims that a, quote, man exposed, quote, himself to a group of women and girls at the Wee Spot in Los Angeles. News of this quote, excuse me, news of this tweet spreads through far-right forums and news sites and onto the conservative political mainstream, where Fox News, Fox News runs six segments of the story in a single week. Media pundit Tucker Carlson repeats without evidence that, quote, a man was naked in the female kids section of the spa, and another host warns that what happened at the spa will occur all across the land. Now, what makes this instance particularly illustrative of the point I'm trying to make is that in this case, the diffusion of hysterical alt-right propaganda into the political mainstream sparks violence. 
Um, following the spread of the tweet into the mainstream, there are anti-trans rallies on two separate weekends outside the spa, which is known to be LGBTQ inclusive. Um, writing for the Guardian newspaper, uh, Sam Levitt and Lewis Beckett described it as a melee of violence that results in at least one stabbing. And front and center are our friends, the Proud Boys. So. Carlson, of course, we know, is uh, considered a uh, gateway to the alt-right. Uh, he regularly produces these extremist talking points on his primetime series. Most recently, I was actually flipping through the channels the other night, and I see he has a special coming up on the 8th. I'm not trying to advertise this, but then specifically, it's like a primetime special about this idea of child abuse and, and transition. But in April, he appeared on the show equating uh, gender-affirming care to castration, and this was in reaction to the White House's very tepid response in defense of trans youth um, following the uh, wave of anti-trans legislation. So Carlson has described gender-affirming care as ghoulish and dangerous and horrifying. I think it's important to note that the statements that are emanating from both conservative media personalities and the Trumpian wing of the uh, Republican Party are not far at all from McGinnis's claim that transgender individuals are mentally ill people who mutilate themselves, right? They're sharing the same word. So again, to underscore this, um, there's this fluid relationship between alt-right ideological production into the political mainstream. So I want to move away from that now, and I want to try to unpack a little bit about, so what, should we say, or I've said, anti-feminism is a core tenet of the alt-right. we got to understand where that's coming from. Um, political reaction to transgender people has often been described as a backlash to increased visibility, and there's truth to that. Um, writing for the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2019, Cassie Miller remarks that, quote, transphobia has long been an animating force within the white nationalist movement, but the tenor of that hatred has changed. At the same time, the transgender rights movement is more active than ever. Yes. The politics of the transgender movement have become more commonplace, both among the radical left and what we might say is in the architecture of neoliberal multiculturalism. So like Target now shows me a trans guy sawing two face. However, the concentrated right-wing response moves beyond that of simple political backlash. As I've said already, the alt-right has a demonstrable preoccupation with the regimenting of gender, but this preoccupation issues from broader socioeconomic anxieties. To the alt-right, Western society is experiencing an avoidable economic and cultural decline. And um, again, to quote Alexandra Minister, she says, the main culprits, according to the alt-right, um, the main culprits of this desolation are feminism and leftism, which according to the Proud Boys and other alt-right formations, spur women to assume ill-fitting male roles based on a specious logic, logic of gender equity, and that the cure for this malaise is the full restitution of a male-female binary. Several scholars have argued that the present moment of political reaction to gender is bound up in a broader response to declining living standards that have been accelerated by neoliberalism um, since the beginning of the 1970s. So Nancy Fraser, T.P. Bhattacharya, as well as um, Agnesia Graf and Elisabetha Korzak. For many, neoliberalism, a seemingly hegemonic economic and political paradigm, has upended the social bonds and economic stability. So I want to just define that to make sure we have a common understanding of the world. Um, economist, and uh, economist and geographer David Harvey defines neoliberalism as, quote, 
a theory of political and economic practice that proposes human well-being can be best advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free, free trade. So in practice, what does this matter? Well, it's matter, of course, we know, the deregulation of markets, the privatization of public goods and services, as well as divestment in the social welfare state. We all know that neoliberalism has led to an overwhelming class inequality, so just to remind us of some of those statistics. In 1970, we'll recall that the ratio of CEO to median, uh, median worker compensation was 30 to 1. Today, that stands at 350 to 1, where CEO pay has risen 1,322% 1 since 1978. The sharp increase in inequality has been paralleled by disinvestment in the social welfare state, and it has, it has left working class families. Um, just to share some statistics, in 2020, um, 38.3 million houses, this is U.S. statistics, 38.3 million U.S. households were food insecure. Housing insecurity has increased. Um, in the year 2020, again, on an average night, 580,000 U.S. residents experienced homelessness, and that number seems quite low. So this is from the um, housing, uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Drug addiction and mental health crises are destroying American families, right? There's no doubt about that. In 2019, 70,000 Americans died as a result of drug overdose. And this number is absolutely harrowing. 1.4 million people attempted suicide. So taken as a whole, those statistics paint a pretty grim picture of American life. And this leads the alt-right to conclude that the family unit is under attack. The alt-right believes that the erosion of kinship ties community relations, and an emphasis on individualism um, are the results of feminism, the sexual revolution, um, and multiculturalism. So as such, the alt-right positions itself to be the protector of the family against this onslaught. Another um, sort of anecdote that might illustrate this is that if you take a look at the Discord leaks, the terms, quote, trad wife and trad husband each appear over 10,000 times. And I think that that really illustrates the way in which heteronormative generals are integral to the alt-right solution to neoliberal despair. Um, writing about the alt-right, I'm uh, sorry, writing about right-wing populism and the anti-gender anti movement in Europe, um, Agnese Graf and Elisabeth Korzuk argue that the current moment is one of political realignment. While the political left identifies the source of familial precarity as an intentional set of socioeconomic policies, or what we might call a socialist ruling class warfare, the right identifies the source of this as a lapse in values. Now, as conspiratorial as this may seem, there is a logic, and I think it's worth tracing that logic. Um, according to Graf and Korzak, the deregulation of capitalism dis displaced workers and eliminated many of the provisions, the social provisions of the Keynesian era. At the same time, transnational corporations flourish. Now, because neoliberalism insists on the open flow of capitalism, Western corporations experience nearly unlimited mobility. As a result, the individual family units weather the devastating effects of regressive economic restructuring. Simultaneously, a new set of values is projected through Western enterprise. So in this sense, the public relations of Amazon and Google present itself both as an ideological and a material threat. Not only have the wages and uh, not only has the nature and wages of work changed, but that change has also coincided with a kind of corporate identity politic. 
uh, which can be interpreted as undermining the family and undermining traditional sexuals. Neoliberalism is defined both as a set of market policies and a cultural project that disrupts social patterns. Traditional gender roles become the right antidote to the alienation and individualism of neoliberalism. Graf and Korslik want to emphasize that the anti-gender movement is not a simple backlash to relative advances that have been achieved by LGBTQ people and cisgender women, but it's also that it's bound up in this rejection um, to neoliberalism, wherein, quote, Western liberal elites are equated with global economic elites. So capitalism in general, and neoliberalism in particular, rely on the privatized family to produce and reproduce its workforce. This is what Marxist feminists describe as social reproduction. Uh, Titi Bhattacharya has written extensively about this and we use her definitions in order to carry us through the next section. Um, but uh, Bhattacharya defines social reproduction as the labor necessary for ensuring the maintenance of the working population, and this includes the physical and psychological care of children and the elderly, the feeding, clothing, and educating of the working population, as well as the production and reproduction of future workers. And although Bhattacharya notes that this social reproduction is increasingly fulfilled by what she describes as both genders and what we would say is all genders, she acknowledges that it is most often supplied by women. Bhattacharya insists that employers have substantial interest in how social reproduction is carried out. Generally, the ruling class opposes the kinds of Keynesian interventions that would allow for the socialized provisioning of social reproduction. Nevertheless, it has a keen interest in how working class families produce their offspring, right? What kinds of aptitudes and attitudes working class people develop in the rearing. Further, a weakened welfare state that individualizes the provisioning of social reproduction results in more pliant workers. Um, results in more pliant workers. As a result of domestic precarity, both men and women become more, this is a quote from Bhattacharya, become more vulnerable at the workplace and thus less able to resist. I have a balance that. Um, in a, another book I want to just shout out, if you haven't read this, The Politics of Everybody by Holly Lewis, this is another one that I cannot recommend enough, um, but in the second edition to, or the preface of the second edition of her book, um, she writes, quote, this is a long quote, but I think it's important, she writes, quote, Capitalism requirement, capitalism's requirement on those that it raises to be women have never been anything but a contradiction bordering on impossibility. Women are required to be the reproducers of the working class as well as sellers of their own labor power. And importantly, where cis heterosexual women are unable to fulfill the duties as angels of social reproduction, the unemployed, children, and queer people, especially queer people without children of their own, are next in line for this unpaid work. Um, as Lewis argues, gender discipline cannot be untangled from, um, from the work of social reproduction. And so in this sense, the wave of anti-trans legislation shores up the borders of womanhood while also relegating trans and gender non-conforming people to an underclass that can be drawn upon as a reserve army of care laborers. The reversal, the reversal of Roe, excuse me, and the proliferation of state-level abortion bans performs a similar function. Both regulating and surveying the bodies of childbearing people leads to greater precarity, and precarious bodies are more vulnerable to both productive and reproductive exploitation. Transgender and gender nonconforming people destabilize the boundaries of gender, right, just by our very existence, and thus gender-based reproductive labor. Trans identities call attention to both the social reproductive labor necessary to create and sustain all bodies, but in particular, the labor necessary in creating gendered bodies. 
and that this is uh, undermines the logic of this uncompensated work. I'm wrapping up soon, just as a heads up. The ruling class, I think this is sort of brings us into that. The ruling class recognizes that there is a crisis in both productive and reproductive labor. If we look at what's happening right now with the central bank, um, right now they're in the process of inducing a recession, right? literally trying to throw people out of work in order to ease the tight labor market. Um, so that's how they're trying to tackle the productive crisis. The social reproductive crisis is a little more difficult to um, sometimes easily tackle. And the neoliberal uh, evisceration of state provisions has strained the family, uh, leading to what is often described as a crisis in care. I'm just going to wrap up with a few statistics. According to a report by the American Association of Retired People, 10,000 Americans turn 65 each day. The number of older adults will double over the next several decades to top 88 million. Elder care is priced out of reach for most families. And so families are responsible for providing that care at the home. And again, this is highly gendered work. We think about 2021, what was talked about is the great resignation. 4.53 million US workers left their jobs during COVID. And while sometimes we can describe this as a revolving door, people went back and found better positions, better wages, better working conditions. Um, at least a slice of these people left the workforce altogether in order to, provide, to, to perform so, care work right in the home. Um, where families can afford care, private care, especially elder care, is left to um, black and brown women uh, who are undercompensated and who must also provide this uncompensated labor in their own homes. Um, again, according to the AARP, we think about uh, what, how this is going to play out. There's going to be a shortfall of care workers, but in just eight years, 2030, uh, there's predicted short, uh, a shortfall of care workers by 151,000. And by 2030, 350, uh, excuse me, by 2040, 355,000. The ruling class and its ideologues certainly don't agree on how to maintain profitability uh, while also addressing the crisis of care. The failed Build Back Better legislation, which sought to extend and expand child tax credits, to provide universal pre-K, to invest in elder care, acknowledged there is an unsustainability to care work or to social reproduction. The Paltry Inflation Reduction Act does not. Sections of the ruling class have certainly embraced the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party's political reaction, while others have reaffirmed their commitment to neoliberal multiculturalism. 248 corporations signed on to a letter, um, uh, including Amazon and the Boston Consulting Group, both of which are terrible anti-labor um, companies. So they signed on to this petition that was opposing the wave of anti-LGBT legislation. Other signatories have included companies, you know, upstanding companies like Dell, and Shell, and Google, and Pfizer. So although these companies may have rainbow logos on their social media accounts, we know that they're no friend to queers. And instead, they believe that LGBTQ workers have already assimilated into capital and can be conscripted to provide the same social reproductive labor that cis-hetero families can do. I have uh, some recommendations about where the left can go from here, but I think I'm going to save those remarks for a five-minute wrap-up at the end. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.